Thank you so much. Thank you for having me tonight as well. It's such a pleasure to be here. And um, yeah, my name is Suzanne. I've been going to Orangefield for a very, very, very long time. Um, and I actually, I was down at Summer Madness there this morning helping out with Tear Funds tents. So it was fantastic to feel incredibly old there, but also to feel incredibly helpful too, which is nice. And um, the young people are just having the time of their lives. And it is so good to see so many of them all together again in one place. And they're there for Jesus and for one another and to learn and to grow. So it was a real blessing um, to see all of that. So it's also a real blessing to come here and speak to you guys tonight. And we're going to continue on in our journey through Mark. So we're looking at Mark chapter 9 tonight. If you want to grab it in the Bible in front of you or on your phone, please feel free to. We're going to be looking a wee bit closely at the text tonight, so it might be useful just to have that in front of you. There's a very big moment in this chapter, and really that's what I'm going to be focusing on tonight. There are a lot of different things that are going on in Mark chapter 9, and I would encourage you to read through it yourself. Um, I'm going to be specifically focusing on the transfiguration, so we're going to look closely together at verses 2 to 9. And it's a big moment, and it's recorded in three of the Gospels. So normally, whenever you see an overlap like that, you know that there's a reason and that we need to focus on it. Um, we're going to be considering the significance of this together. And um, let's take a look at the, the passage, and we'll see what God has to share with us. So after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And they were coming down the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So... This is a good one. I, I love anything that comes in brackets in the Bible as well. I love those little asides. We'll, we'll get into that later. So the passage begins with after six days. So I used to be an English teacher. Maz is not my strong point, but I think after six days means day seven, which is a pretty significant day whenever we consider the Genesis story, which is what Mark's readers obviously would have done. So Already, Mark is starting to signal out to us that this is an important moment. We have to pay attention to it. So let's do that. And what we see are Jesus and Peter and James and John, and they are hiking up a high mountain, which is not an easy feat um, in any case, but in first century shoes, presumably a lot more difficult. And I feel sometimes like we need to resist the urge to oversimplify what Mark kind of just passes over there because in oversimplifying it, it kind of diminishes the act a little bit and it diminishes its significance completely. So if you think about what it's like to climb up the morns today, 
in your shoes that you bought out of decathlon with your backpack and your cliff bar and your wee gel sack. It's, it's normally okay, but do you know what? There pretty much is for most of us enough time to consider how all of your life choices have led you to this dreadful moment where you are exhausted and soaking and is that a dead sheep? Going up mountains is not easy. I had a really, really terrible experience last year with a friend of mine. He is a mountaineering instructor and so therefore I trusted her, which was my first red flag. She said to me, oh, there's this bit in the morns. I've never been up before. I'd love to do it, do you wanna come with me? And I was like, Kelly, I literally have the physical ability of a bag of flour. Are you absolutely sure that this is for me? Oh yeah, 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 it's totally fine. We're just gonna go for a walk in the mountains. You're gonna have a great time. I mean, you can see where all of this is going. Like there are so many red flags in this story. I should have turned back instantly. And so we were kind of walking through the mountains and she was like, yep, that's, that's where we're heading over there. So I was like, oh, okay. Do you know what? Actually, that challenging, yes. But I feel like I can do that. And then she she looked at me and she saw where I was looking and was like, no, 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 there. And I looked up and was like, right, Kelly, what's that called? And she said, the Devil's Coach Road. And so again, yet another red flag for me. I was like, really? Okay, all right. And at this point, in my life, I was going through CBT, which is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And one of the things that they do in that is they get you to identify negative automatic thoughts. And then you have to push back against these negative automatic thoughts. This is a really bad time for me to apply my CBT learning because I was like, I can't do it. And then I was like, no, that is a negative automatic thought. I must fight against it. Maybe I can do it. Cut to 10 minutes later and we are stuck. We are absolutely stuck in a sheer granite gully. We should have gone right, we went left. I trusted her, she's the mountaineer. She did not know what she was doing. And so we're stuck and there are no footholds, there's nothing. I recognize that we're in a place where I should be wearing a helmet, I should have climbing shoes on, we should be roped together. We have none of this. I am literally third year Duke of Ed, borrowed shoes. Like that's how bad it is. And I have never prayed harder in my whole life than at that moment. Whenever I looked at her and she looked as frightened as I felt. So <laughs> needless to say, it ended well because I'm here and I still have all of my limbs. But that was a really scary moment that gave me a lot of time to consider what my relationship with God really was. And actually, I've never had a prayer answered so quickly in my life because, and this is probably a different sermon for a different time, and I will tell you more about it if you'd like to know. Two people appeared at the top of the gully. We had not seen anybody else all day. They took our bags. They literally lifted us up and, and saved our lives effectively, in a miraculous answer to prayer. But my point being, even with my previous experience of being in the morns, even with the gear that we had, even with my guide, I could never have fully prepared myself for what was going to happen at the top of that mountain. 
And I think sometimes whenever we read about Peter and James and John following Jesus up this high mountain, that we kind of sugarcoat it, we kind of felt bored it a wee bit, almost like we've got little cartoon characters walking up a triangle and they just get to the top. And there's nothing difficult in between. And that line kind of feels a bit throwaway, like whenever the Bible talks about going to a quiet place or a solitary place, and it's just there. But it's coded language for us. And the problem is, if we don't know our Old Testament, and if we don't know our Torah, then that's all we're going to continue to think. But actually, what Mark is doing here is he's signaling to us that something significant is going to happen. And what's really exciting is that Peter knows this too, because Peter is really deep in the Torah, in those first books of the Bible. And if we know anything about the character of Peter, we know that he's probably absolutely buzzing as he is following Jesus up this mountain. He's probably, yo, lads, go on. Whereas I, would, I feel more akin to the likes of James, who never once claimed to be the fastest disciple as John did. I feel like James and I are, are much more of a sedentary, thoughtful kind of disciple rather than Peter or John. And so I love the fact that Peter would have been thinking the whole time he was clambering up this mountain behind Jesus, something big is about to happen. Something big is about to happen. I loved that Davy mentioned Steven Spielberg earlier because I love movies. I love sci-fi movies. I love action films. I love all of those genres. And whenever you become familiar with a particular type of film or a particular type of TV series, and you probably all have your own favorite style that you like to watch, when you become familiar with it, you start to spot patterns, don't you? You start to see repeating character types or similar locations or the plot becomes predictable. Even if you've never actually watched that TV show or the movie before, you know what's going to happen if they go through that door before they do it. And there are different types of characters that we'll see quite a lot in films. There's the hero who rises to the challenge and he saves the day. They're courageous. They're heroic. They're sometimes overconfident. Luke Skywalker, Peter Parker... Frodo, I'm such a geek, I love it. And they come from an obscure place, a backwater, and they're unexpected heroes, but you know that they are the ones that the movie is going to center around. There's always a wise figure who gives knowledge to the hero, like a mentor who shares wisdom with them, but they're typically quite hesitant to join in the action, like Obi-Wan Kenobi or Galadriel or Tony Stark. And the villain is often signified with music. And we understand what it means without anybody having to explain because, you know, we become so familiar with the genre. Darth Vader, for example, enters to, presumably in your head, hopefully, if you're as geeky as me, you've just gone dun, 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 dun. dun. And my son Tom is six, and he immediately, without me having to teach him, understands that that music signifies that something bad is going to happen, and the person he's watching is a bad guy. And he hasn't, I haven't sat down and taught him that, and he wouldn't be able to explain that either, but because he has learned to associate music and film at a really early age, he picks up on those signifiers. And it's the same for us with mountains in the Bible. 
especially in the Old Testament, mountains are that Darth Vader theme tune. Mountains are a picture that signifies something important. And Gareth likes to call them thin places. They're places where heaven and earth overlap. So the Garden of Eden is commonly believed to have been on a mountaintop or on a plateau. Noah's Ark comes to rest on top of Mount Ararat. God speaks directly to Abraham, tells him not to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai, spends so much time in God's presence on the mountain that his face literally glows. And the presence of God passes by Elijah on Mount Horeb in 1 Kings. Not in the wind, not in the fire, but in that still, small, quiet moment. So according to the Torah, mountains are where great heroes of faith meet with God. And Peter knew those details. And his perception of the purpose of the journey that we see him on with Jesus and his friends, that perception is colored by his religious and his cultural upbringing, he's really, really deep in the Torah. And he's absolutely buzzing for what's going to happen next. And if we look at verses 5 and 6, we see what his reaction is. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In brackets. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. I love this. I love imagining that it's Peter sitting beside Mark on one of their journeys. Mark's got a bit of time. He's going to write down some of Peter's story. And he leans over to Mark and was like, I can't believe I said that out loud in front of Moses and Elijah. I was so frightened. And it's just that really lovely personal detail in there that just gives you a glimpse into the humanity of, of people that we read about but don't necessarily consider to be actual humans, you know, like us. What I'm going to do, and, and please excuse me, is I'm going to completely ignore Moses and Elijah um, because uh, I don't have a theology master's. Um, but if anybody would like to pay for me to do one, absolutely. And I'll come back next year and I'll tell you exactly what Moses and Elijah mean. Let's just settle with the fact that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. GCSE, RE, and, and we'll move on. But if you do want me to learn more, I'll give you my bank details. That would be great. Last week, Johnny was talking about how poorly translated advertising slogans didn't quite work in other countries. And what we have here is a really good example of uh, this happening to Peter. Peter is becoming a victim of mistranslation whenever he says, let us put up three shelters. And actually, what I was taught whenever this particular passage came up in Sunday school or school was that Peter's reaction to the appearance of Moses and Elijah was a reflection of his stupidity. He completely lacked understanding of what was going on around him. And at best, he was offering to literally build a house for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and they would live on this mountain forever. Or at worst, to him, it was a really good opportunity to earn his bronze chick of ed, or like whatever the first century equivalent was, which is quite possibly Herod Andy Pass Achievement Award, maybe. That's for all you history geeks out there. Please look that up, because that is actually a really good joke, if you know who I'm talking about. Um, but... What's happening here is Bible translation is doing Peter 
an absolute dirty. He's not offering to put up a tent for them. What he's doing here is he's offering to build tabernacles. That's the correct translation. I'm sorry, NIV. But that is the correct translation of the Greek, sky nay. And that's a far more significant word than shelter. And what it does, and an understanding that Peter is saying tabernacle here, brings us back once again to Peter being a very strong product of his religious and his cultural upbringing. And it also shifts our perspective of Peter as well and the significance of this moment for him. He's afraid, yes, he says it himself, but he's not stupid. What's happening here is that fear is taking him back to a familiar state. So think about whenever you're afraid, what do you go for? Is it comfort food? Is it a song, a favorite song? Is it a physical reaction that helps to ground you? I will play with my necklace sometimes, just if a moment feels overwhelming. We each have our own thing that we do that takes us back to a familiar place, that makes something that is frightening feel a little less frightening. And Peter is afraid, but what we see here is that Peter's comfort zone in this moment is the Torah. So what exactly is it about the Torah that takes Peter and makes him say these things? Why is he offering to put up a tabernacle for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and what even is a tabernacle? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, you get a very detailed description of Eden. And Eden is presented to us as the original tabernacle, although you kind of have to read Exodus first and then go back and you'll see the connections. But Eden is a place where heaven and earth overlap and it's a place where humanity and God lived together. But as we know, Eden failed. Adam decided that he knew best, that he would follow his own path and he and Eve had to leave the presence of God and the garden. So if humanity was ever to come back into God's presence again, a new tabernacle was going to be needed in order to do that. And if we cut very thousands of years later to Exodus 25, what we get are seven incredibly detailed chapters of architectural blueprints for a tent that God calls the tabernacle. And it's filled with cherubim and lampstands and plants and trees. There are instructions on incense and clothing and burnt offerings. And all of them are specifically designed to reflect creation and to reflect Eden's garden state. And actually, whenever you look at the details a wee bit more closely, it is kind of funny that Peter's like, I'll build you three seven chapters worth of it. It's kind of like saying, I'm going to build three Lego Hogwarts in 20 minutes. It's just not going to happen. And Peter offers this, bless him. And God tells Moses in Exodus 25 that the purpose of the tabernacle is that he's going to dwell among them, among the Israelites. But that tabernacle also fails because while Moses is being given the blueprints on the high mountain, the Israelites are in the plain building themselves a great big golden calf that they are worshipping. There's lots of other very bad behavior going on simultaneously. And later Aaron, who is the chief priest, his sons go in and they mess up. The very first time they go into it, they mess it up. They die and their dead bodies completely destroy the sanctity 
of the tabernacle. It just goes very downhill very quickly anytime humans get involved. And in Kings, we see a continuation of this tabernacle pattern, but this time it's David. King David wants to build a temple. The Israelites are now a strong kingdom. They've defeated everyone. They feel confident. They feel safe. They're ready to make this tabernacle permanent. They're going to call it a temple. But God tells David he's not allowed to build it. There's too many moral failures in his own life. So it's going to be up to his son Solomon to do it. So Solomon builds the temple, but Solomon also very quickly becomes morally compromised as well, progressively do his worse and worse descendants. And as you can imagine, the temple fails again. And Ezekiel describes seeing God's presence leaving the temple. He sees God abandoning in Ezekiel 10, verse 18, if you want to look it up. And the people of Israel are taken into exile and the temple is destroyed. So given those repeated failures of the tabernacle pattern, why is it that it's Peter's automatic response to offer to build not just another one, but another three? How has he come to this place where the failures of the past have been reframed in his mind that make him believe that this time it's going to be different? If we do the same thing enough times, we're going to eventually find ourselves back in Eden, in that place of heaven and earth overlapping. I personally think religious nostalgia is a very powerful force. And I think that's what we're seeing in Peter. And to be fair to Peter, that belief was everywhere. I mean, Jesus spends most of his ministry trying to break down people's learned religious and cultural views of what the kingdom of God is going to be. He tells them it's a mustard seed, not a cedar. It's yeast. It's not a banquet. He's a shepherd. He's not a king. He tells them stories about prodigal sons who are welcomed home after they've committed all kinds of heinous acts against Jewish laws, purity laws, food laws, family laws. He heals on the Sabbath. Jesus's kingdom is new and it's frightening and it's unfamiliar. And the understanding of that kingdom hasn't really taken hold in the disciples yet. And so Peter, like so many others, has got this really unshakable view of the Torah and of who the Messiah is going to be and what God's kingdom is going to look like. So in Peter's mind, the Messiah is going to reestablish the kingdom power of the past He's going to be for one place. He's going to be for one people. He's going to bring military power to bear on these invading nations. But that's not what God's plan is. All of those perspectives, all of those attitudes, all of those choices in the past, they've all led to failure. And the mistakes of the past are destined to repeat themselves. And 
that's the secular view, and it's, it's quite often the secular reality as well. It's strange going to the cinema and watching the new Top Gun, when in the original Top Gun, it was the Russians who were the baddies. And watching it now, 30 years, 40 years after the original film came out, and thinking, it could just be the same again. Our reality feels like a repeat, a constant repeat of failures. But that's not God's reality. And really, as his people, then it shouldn't be ours either. Because God's always doing new things. And in Peter's present, he is now starting to see, not quite understand, but starting to see that there might be a new tabernacle. And that that new tabernacle is Jesus. And he's so close. He's so, so close to understanding what's going on. He just hasn't quite been able to grasp that he doesn't need to build a tabernacle anymore. That pattern is finished. And it was never God's plan A anyway. God is making all things new and he's making them new through Jesus. But for Peter... And for others, when your religious and your cultural upbringing is so deeply rooted, it's often really hard to understand that something new might be better than what came before. And John has a wee bit more time to think on this. Mark's gospel, it's all action. It's very much Peter's response in the moment. This is what most people believe to have been the first gospel that was written. So it's just get this down on paper and get this out there. John had more time, more time to think, more time to consider. So in John, in chapter 1 of John and verse 14, he writes, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the word dwelling there is that same Greek word, that same root word, eskenai. And Eugene Peterson's The Message Version is great because he translates it as moved into the neighborhood. So it gives you more of like a physical idea of God coming into a place. But what John has recognized, what he is pointing us towards, what he's signaling to us is that Jesus is the tabernacle. And in Mark 9, in this moment of transfiguration, what we are getting is the cementing of that identity, that Jesus is the place where heaven and earth overlap. He's the mountaintop. He's the temple. He's the holy of holies. For Peter and for the other disciples on that mountain, the kingdom of heaven was quite literally at hand. But Peter doesn't understand it in that moment. And I think all of us can relate to that. Sometimes it's only in time when we look back on an event that has been really significant that we really truly understand what it meant. And so for Peter, it's not until the resurrection, it's not until Pentecost that he's able to finally see the kingdom as it truly is. Not through that religious and cultural lens of his upbringing, but instead through the power of the Holy Spirit in him. And the appearance in Acts 2 of what, what looks like tongues of fire, that's a little signal again to us to consider the flame, 
that was in the tabernacle and the fire of God's presence in the temple, the fire that Ezekiel saw leave, it's coming back. It has come back. It's returned. And it hasn't returned to a building or a dwelling place or a tent or a tabernacle. It's come to people. And it's such a powerful rewriting of an image that would have been really familiar to a Jewish reader. And at the same time, a completely alien concept that God's glory was going to inhabit people. And so at Pentecost, Peter realizes that the tabernacle that he was so focused on, that he was so keen to build, not just one, but three, it's actually inside him. And it's inside all of Jesus' followers and that it wasn't just for Jews either, that this wasn't a national laying on of God's glory, but this was international. And that he was coming to understand that the tent was never God's end game. It was always to create a kingdom in which God's presence could dwell among his people without any barrier. No curtain, no walls, just present. And Peter comes to a point then, and we see it in his ministry, and we see in what he does next, that tents aren't necessary, that the future is shaped by him, and he carries that across the nations. He moves as the tent moved, but he brings that personal presence of God with him. And I was thinking about, well, what? It's, it's great to look at the Bible. It's great to see how it's all connected. It's great to know that the Bible is a unified story that leads us to Jesus. But what does that look like for us? How do we take that understanding and how do we apply it? Well, I am so grateful, and, and there are so many of you here sitting here tonight as well. I am so grateful to the generation above me that changed the world that I live in. I am so incredibly grateful to have belonged to this church since I was 10. I'm so grateful for how forward thinking and for how groundbreaking this church is. I mean, there are churches in this country that wouldn't allow me to stand here because of my gender not because of my lack of masters. I am so grateful to Orangefield for that. This is a groundbreaking church. You haven't looked at what was done before and kept doing it. You haven't repeated those patterns just because. You follow God's leading. You've changed according to his guidance. And even though now is a really scary time and sometimes it's easy to fall back like Peter into what is familiar, I don't think that's what God's calling us into in this season. I know things are unknown and things are changing so quickly and they are frightening. But <laughs> one day, Mission Praise looked really frightening. And one day, a keyboard looked really frightening. And one day, a church without pews seemed like a totally unthinkable 
perspective on what church could be and, and look at us. Look at where we are. Look at who we are. Look at what we've done. Look at what you've done. Look at the foundations that have been laid. Look at what has been built on those and continues to be built. And I just think that we need to keep moving forward. We need to keep pressing into God's kingdom. The tabernacle by its very nature was designed to always be on the move. And human tabernacles are exactly the same. We need to keep moving forward. I need to change the things that God is calling me to change. I need to discern the things of the past that I have to leave behind now, that God doesn't have any use for anymore. He did at the time, and it was good, but it's finished and something new is coming. And I need to discern what God is doing to bring his kingdom nearer. And I don't want my kids to do the same thing as me. I don't want Cora and Tom to think that, oh, mommy was in the prayer team, so I'll be in the prayer team. Oh, mommy helped with salt, so I'll help with salt. I, I don't want them to feel like they have to repeat my patterns. I want them to do more. I want them to do it differently. I want them to keep moving forward. I want it to look like them. I don't want it to look like me. I want them to make difficult choices and I'll be there just as the generations who have come before me have been there for me and have enabled me to be who I am today. I don't want them to keep doing what I did just because it's always been done that way. And I don't think that's what God wants either for any of us. I don't think we can allow nostalgia to trap us in repeating patterns of ministry, especially if we see that they're failing. We need to ask ourselves if our views of the past are preventing us from working towards the true vision of the kingdom. And I think as people in Northern Ireland, we know more than most how much of a trap the past can become. But we also know more than most how powerful God's ability to pull us out of those traps of nostalgia, those traps of the past that really keep us in one place. We have seen the church move forward and we are still that church and we want to move forward with God. And to do that, I think we do have to accept that we have an identity as a tabernacle when we accept Jesus, when we accept the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit lives within us, dwells in us, we're transfigured like Jesus is transfigured to become that thin place, that mountaintop. We're the place where heaven and earth meet. And I just want you to be assured of that tonight and be challenged by that too. That's massive. <laughs> Taking that identity on ourselves, that's huge. We are God's dwelling place. He lives in us. Peter wanted to build a tabernacle. Peter was the tabernacle. We want to build the church. We're the church. Let's build it. Guys, I'm going to invite the band back up. Just as we're sort of coming in to finish up tonight. Um, there were a few things that just as I was preparing for tonight that I just want to share with you. There's prayer ministry afterwards as well. If it's something that you feel is for you, please um, feel free to come up and we can pray through that with you. 
I felt like there was a need of to let go um, of the past, of maybe repeating patterns or behaviors that you know aren't biblical, they're not healthy, they're not good for you. And it's hard to do that alone. If you feel that having someone come alongside you and pray for you for that tonight would be of value, and let me assure you that it is, we would love to pray with you, whatever that would be. And I also had a sense that being told that God's glory dwells in you and that that gives you innate value is hard to accept sometimes because of who we believe we are, of the identity that has been placed on us by others or by our religious or our cultural upbringing as well. And that that perspective of yourself that does not accept that true value, that needs to be broken. And we want to pray alongside you tonight to break that. And if you've never experienced that infilling of the Holy Spirit, if you know Jesus and you love Jesus, but that flame has maybe gone out or has maybe just not been something that you have had, that you have felt on you, we want to pray that for you tonight as well. We want to pray that the Holy Spirit will come and fill you. So let me just pray with you and then I'm going to hand back over to the band. God, we are so, so grateful for what has come before. But God, we also know that there are things in the past that we need to move forward from. We need to claim identity. We need to claim our place. We need to be your tabernacle. And we want to move forward into a future that you are leading us into, whether that is something that we understand fully, whether it is something that you are going to guide us into an understanding of, help us to take that step of faith tonight. God, don't let fear be the emotion that guides our choices. Father, let our love for you be our guide. So God, would you speak to us tonight? Would you minister to us by your Holy Spirit in this time? We thank you for your words. We thank you for Peter. We thank you for the church that he began in your name at Pentecost. And Lord God, I pray that we would take that flame and we would run with it. And that we would see a restoration, Lord, a reformation of your church in this time. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name.